46, which is located in your bulletin and in our church Bibles on page 746. Please stand if you are able as we read from the Old Testament. The banks of the Uai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Medea and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. Please be seated. As we are uh, heading towards the end of Daniel, we're taking bigger and bigger gulps. And uh, these two chapters, verses 8 and 9, are the second time that Daniel is visited in the course of some six years or so and uh, given a vision. And in the vision, as you will see, is the angel Gabriel bringing the words of God, but also this other figure who will become clearer as, uh, as we go on. We are going to spend most of our time in Daniel 9 this morning. Why did we take a reading from Daniel 8? Well, it's among the mysteries that are also included in this chapter. So let's pray and ask God to be at the center of our time together. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Come unto me and rest. Lay down thy weary one, lay down thy head upon my breast. I came to Jesus as I was, weary and worn and sad. I found in him a resting place, and he has made me glad. Lord, our prayer by your word this morning is that we would know that resting place, the deep rest that comes from the assurance of the words of God to our soul, that despite the churning world in which we live, you have us and this world in hand. Lord, would you speak to us, we pray, through these verses this morning, in Christ's name, amen. Well, we're starting a bit later this morning than we normally do, uh, but I hope we'll get through this in uh, fairly short order. So, Daniel 8 and 9, focusing on Daniel 9 in particular. 
<clears throat> you may have heard people say history repeats itself. History repeats itself, said the philosopher Karl Marx, first as tragedy, second as farce. History repeats itself, has to, said the poet Steve Turner, because no one ever listens. And if history repeats itself, as one anonymous child once said, I am so getting a dinosaur. <clears throat> and the patterns that people have seen, the patterns that people have seen in history beg an obvious question, don't they? Is history just what human beings produce? Is it the same old mistakes, the same old failures that we expect from human beings that will be the sum of history? Or is history what history produces, as if history was an independent teacher of some kind, showing us what and what not to do? Or is history ultimately the product of someone greater's decisions, of an all-powerful, all-knowing, totally in charge God? I want to read this to you. This is what J.I. Packer says of the Christian view of history. The Bible's dominant conviction about God, a conviction proclaimed from Genesis to Revelation, is that behind and beneath all the apparent confusion of this world lies his plan. That plan concerns the perfecting of a people and the restoring of a world through the mediating action of Christ. God governs human affairs with this end in view, and human history is a record of the outworking of his purposes. It has been truly said that history is his story. So as you come to Daniel 8 and 9, this is the end of history. As we look at the time of the end, this is the end, the meaning, the purpose of history that the Bible has in view. Not nuclear war that will end it or asteroid collision or being wiped out by disease, no matter how some of us feel this morning, or starved or flooded or invaded by aliens. No, this will be the end of history. This is the purpose of it. Knowing that first, humanity is in peril, but from its creator, from its judge, and it cannot save itself. And second, that God, who is directing human history, has and is offering himself to human beings as their only rescue before he brings history to a close. And as you'd expect with history, and these two chapters in Daniel, there's a lot to get through. Unfortunately, probably more in detail here than uh, we can get to this morning, but I'm hoping to give you the mountain peaks of this. We're going to focus our study under three headings, peril, prayer, and prophecy. Peril, prayer, and prophecy. So if you would turn to chapter 9 and these first two verses, this issue of peril. So I've developed a way of measuring the apocalypse. It's not scientific, but I think it shows that something is happening. Someone has actually made a list of apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic, and zombie-apocalyptic movies by the decade. So in the 40s, there were four. In the 50s, there were 12. In the 60s, there were 23. In the 70s, 80s, and 90s, there were 35 apiece. 
And in the first decade of the 2000s, known to many of us as the noughties, there were 63. But in the last few years, the decade barely half done, there were 69 already. Because people are scared. People are scared around the world, at least in their imaginations, that the world is coming to an end. And as we find Daniel here, we find him also scared because Daniel's been reading. He hasn't been watching movies, but he's been reading the Bible. And you'll see it's Daniel's knowledge of what the prophets of the Old Testament have said. Isn't it interesting to find one prophet reading another? About this time that he's living through. And he looks to the Bible, to the words of God, to direct him in the middle of his frightened state, but also in the middle of his hope. And so he tells us in chapter 9, in the first year of Darius, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So Daniel says that he's been reading Jeremiah for signs when the end of the desolations of Jerusalem will come. He's been reading about these desolations or devastations, I suppose we would say, because he's hoping that they will come to an end. That's the promise. That's the reason that Israel has been in exile, because of these desolations, because of these devastations. I suppose that Daniel is looking to Jeremiah as we might look to the doomsday clock, but not to annihilation, rather to him for hope. And so Daniel, you'll see, is in Babylon. He's counting down the years to when the Bible has promised that the Jews will return to Jerusalem. And he sees that the promised end of the desolations is coming, which means an end to the exile and a time of return. But Daniel is also frightened. Why is he frightened? Well, he's read that the desolations of Jerusalem will last for 70 years. It says so in verse 2. He has arrived in Babylon around 600 BC. He's now an old man. It's probably around 538 BC when he's writing this. So he knows the deadline is approaching in maybe five or six years. And we know that that process began shortly thereafter. Well, with the date returning, why is he scared? Well, he's scared because he believes, or has reason to believe at least, that the cycle of sin, of suffering, of repentance, of restoration will just continue on and on. This was Israel's experience. This was their history. This was the human failure, right? That people turn to God, but after a time they turn away from him. I can almost in my mind's eye hear Karl Marx, who was Jewish, and his buddy Frederick Engels, who'd grown up Reformed, both of them taunting Daniel and his faith. Your history is a farce, they would have said. And I think that's Daniel's genuine fear, surely, as he comes to this, that there will be no end to this pattern. But this is the promise, and this is the promise in Jeremiah that the desolations will not be forever. They will not be indefinite. But rather, verse 2, we read, the desolations will come to an end. The transgression will be finished. And sin will be put to an end. Why? 
Well, for a very specific reason, this is the definitive spine of history. This is what determines it. Because iniquity, our sins will be atoned for and paid for in full. Verse 24. And I think it's worth asking ourselves, reading this, whether our response to the Bible is the same as Daniel's. You know, you might expect, I do at least, that as a prophet he might get a pass. He doesn't have to read the Bible because he's too busy producing it or at least being involved in the production of it. But he looks to the Bible as his very keen guide, an exact guide to him, a promise to him, the assurance to him. And as he sees there, he has to make this balance, doesn't he? As he looks to the Bible between pessimism and optimism. And I wonder if we don't have that same challenge about the way that we see our current times, about the way that we might see our future. Because it is possible, isn't it, to be either too pessimistic, as many people are, or either too optimistic. Too optimistic because, after all, there are no guarantees that despite our apparent advantages and securities and technologies, our wealth, our learning, our resources in the West, that God will not bring the Western church through a similar trial. We have no such assurance Or on the other hand, we can't be too pessimistic. I was reading the story of Fadi and Karima. These are two Muslims who fled Syria. They've been living for the past two years in Lebanon. I think this is part of the great wave of immigration, which I believe God is orchestrating across the planet, particularly from Muslim lands. And it's something I believe that we should be bearing in mind as we pray for our own nation. That people like Fadi and Karima, they're coming to Lebanon. They found themselves in the care of Christians, of a Christian family who took them in. And they have seen, Kari, Karima and uh, Fadi have seen God dramatically answer their prayers. First for a home, and then as they prayed with that Christian family for healing for their daughter. And they came to belief in the Messiah, Jesus. And this is what Karima says. They face insults, isolation, even daily beatings in a majority Muslim country, but this is what she says. The biggest challenge in our lives is that we know we have eternal life. Sorry, the biggest change in our lives is that we know we have eternal life. Our names are written in the book of life. God has given us peace, and he has given us joy. Life is beautiful, even in the midst of all of our troubles. That's magnificent. To cling to Christ, even in a lifetime of peril, must be the picture of all of our lives and that balance between pessimism and optimism. Because you see, your history, too, will bring these trials. For some of you, there have been tragedies. And we, like Daniel or Fadi or Karima, we may be frightened, but the Bible assures us the perils have a purpose and that they will come to an end. That's what we are to be sure of, that we are kept safe within the purposes of God for us in Jesus Christ. Personally, I treasure, as many of you do, Jeremiah 29. Don't let people tell you that it was simply written for the nation of Israel. It is spoken directly to Israel, but it's also spoken directly to Daniel because he is the one for whom it's meant here as he picks it up and reads it. Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 13. 
If you're in trouble, these are verses for you. The same verses that Daniel was reading. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. Plans to give you a future and a hope. This is what we need to see, isn't it? God's plans are what determine our future. Not our present troubles. Not our circumstances. Not the way that we see the world is going. Not the way that we feel. Not the level of our bank account. Not our employment. Not the challenges that our family is facing. Not what we can achieve or not achieve, but rather the plans of God in the character of God. And this is the promise, isn't it? Not that you and I won't have trouble or tragedy. We may. But the promise is that God will keep us safe through them, through those perils. Second here, prayer, verses 3 to 23. You know, I'm full of jokes. There's this old uh, aviation joke that goes something like this. Pilot to tower, I am 300 miles from land, 600 feet over water. I've less than five minutes left of fuel. Please instruct. Tower to pilot, repeat after me. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The joke is probably more revealing than it attends because it's true. We see prayer as something best left for emergencies. But here's Daniel, maybe six or seven years out from when he expects things to happen with the return to Jerusalem, and he turns to prayer, and to a very specific form of prayer. And I think we can learn from Daniel as Daniel prayed, not just in the crisis. Look at the context here. Daniel prays, and he prays a prayer of confession because he knows what has led Israel to this point of exile, right? It is the people's sin. It is his own people's sin. So Jeremiah 29 verse 10, this will be the end of the exile. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and I will bring you back to this place. So here's a principle when you pray, particularly when you come as you must, as I must, to confession. Look first at God. Look first at God and his promises. Don't start confession. This is really easy. Don't start prayer with confession of sin. Don't start with yourself, but rather pray with adoration, remembering the character and nature of God. Live much in the smiles of God, said Robert Murray McShane. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. You see, the essence here of Daniel's confession of national sin, notice, is one that can embrace his own part in it. But he can only do that because he knows his value already in the God who loves him. So do you see this? As you look at this long prayer of confession, which is entirely appropriate for national sin, the pronoun he uses is not they, but we. And not just us, but I. Look at verse 20, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. He was only a little boy when he left Jerusalem. And yet he sees there his own heart and the sin of which he's been a part, as his people have. So this is the heart of confession, isn't it? To own it, to own sin in the presence of an awesome and great creator. 
There's been a lot of debate over the last decade about whether we should confess national sins, particularly national historic sins, as Daniel is here. And when we confess those national sins as, as he's doing, there's actually a great essay by C.S. Lewis called The Dangers of National Repentance. I recommend you read it. It's entirely appropriate. It is appropriate to confess national sin, national historic sin that have become part of who we are, part of our culture, part of our history that we can't erase. So it's appropriate to own what we ourselves have done. You know, my own nation, I think it is not said enough, the nation at least that I was brought up in was the one that had the largest part perhaps in producing the evil of slavery. But the examination over these last few years has been the American experience of slavery. And you might say to yourself as a contemporary Christian, well, I haven't kept slaves. Should I confess sin in that way? How can I? Well, you can. Perhaps not by saying I kept slaves, but you can say my heart could do this. Because I see in my own heart the way I use people. I see the way that I assert my own superiority. I see my own prejudice towards others who are like, unlike me, including those of a different skin color. And when we confess sin, you see this, there's never a they without a we, and there's never a you without an I. And so you come to a holy God who demands that we live in reality, the reality of his mercy. That means it is important we confess sin. And notice Daniel makes two lists here. On the one hand, what God has done. On the other, what his people have done. We're going to draw some of these out very briefly. To own our own sin, verse 4, you'll notice that Daniel says, God, you have kept your promises, your covenants, but we on our part have not. And Daniel goes further. He says, we haven't only been faithless, we have rebelled in the face of your faithfulness, God. And verse 7, to own our sin, verse 7 and 9, Daniel speaks of their open shame, and he means among the nations, that Israel, who was supposed to be the standard bearer of God's justice and his mercy, have put him to open shame. And he means here their guilt, which has become evident to all. Neither guilt nor shame have a particularly good reputation nowadays, but the two are different. Shame, as you know, says, I do bad because I am bad. That's not what the Bible recommends. Rather, it is guilt that's in view that says, I've done bad, but I'm not bad inherently. Rather, I am greatly loved. And so when John Brennan of the CIA said of President Trump a couple of weeks ago that he should be ashamed of himself for something he said, and no doubt it provoked a tweet, I imagine that stung because it stings all of us. He presumably was talking about his behavior, not about his identity. And the curious thing, of course, is that shame of itself cannot change anyone. There's no incentive or value in it. But guilt can. Healthy guilt properly dealt with can. Where you know you are loved and valued, you know it can. Many of us, as we think about disciplining our children in a gospel way, this is the incentive. Not simply to say, be good, don't be bad, but rather to challenge our children and to encourage them. This isn't you. You're a prince or you're a princess in the kingdom. 
You belong in the gospel. This isn't you. And so a call for repentance in our own hearts too. And to own our own sin, verses 11 to 13, despite God's patience and endless warnings, you'll notice Daniel says, we haven't listened and calamity has come upon us. This isn't unusual for the way that God deals with us. And he may do so, you may know this from your own experience, time again, even for Christians, perhaps especially for Christians, Part of my own story is that after I'd done the religious thing in my early teens and been confirmed in the church and done all of that, I started drifting pretty decisively away from God. I became, among other things, a petty thief, stealing from my mother's purse and stealing from a local toy store with some other boys. And it took disaster in my family's life made use of by a sovereign, loving father to get my attention. And maybe some of you have said the same. You can see it in your own lives. Disaster came because it made you turn back to God. Maybe that's happening right now to you. I don't know. But the God who loves you may be trying to get your attention. And here the incentive to pray, you'll notice, to confess or repent is the mercy of God towards you. Look at verse 20. While Daniel was praying, of the words in Scripture in this context, can there be a word that's more important? While he was praying, this is what Gabriel tells him, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Because God, you see, doesn't wait until you have groveled sufficiently or have earned his attention by your repentance or your penitence. The church has historically been entirely wrong about that. God's first inclination at the first sign of repentance in the name of Christ, depending on his mercy, is to assure you of his love. Because it is not or your repentance or your penitence or how persuasively you say you're sorry that earns God's mercy. No, verse 18, 18, do you see this? Not because of our righteousness, and Daniel wasn't even evangelical nor reformed, and he could say this, not because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy, the message of the New Testament. That's the confidence that Jesus, the righteousness of God, will answer God's justice and stand for his people's sins. He has appeared once for all, the scriptures tell us, at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. There is no other. That's why we come boldly to God's throne of grace when we confess our sins. And finally, briefly, prophecy, verses 24 through 27. Notice Daniel, who has been praying that Jerusalem should be restored. He's these sobering prophetic words from Gabriel about the future after the restoration. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and its sanctuary. He's talking about Jerusalem. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war, desolations, again, beyond the restoration are decreed. I want you to focus your attention again on that one word that must have come as a surprise to Daniel. Not one desolation, but many desolations in the future, plural. In other words, the Almighty has his plans, and not even the heartfelt prayers of his people can change that plan for history. 
In other words, I think by application, it's not up to us to change the Western world. What happens to America is not up to us. We are to pray for our nation. You know, there's a prayer meeting this week among pastors in Richmond to pray for America, and it's entirely appropriate that that happen. And we are to witness to our nation and to our neighbors and to our communities and to our friends, and we are to say the words of Jesus to those people that we meet and that we know. But the destiny of this nation lies with a higher court. I hope that brings you confidence and some encouragement. Desolations, even abominations will come. Worse than anything Daniel could have imagined happened to Jerusalem and may happen to the church. But nevertheless, God's people are greatly loved. It's tempting to forget that, isn't it? Particularly when you're going through crisis. Particularly after time and we grow weary and we say to ourselves, well, perhaps God doesn't love me. Perhaps that's just a word. Perhaps it's just a theological abstraction. But in the middle of the exile, these words come to Daniel. You are greatly loved. So if you feel like God is saying that he hates you, not at all, grave and reverences, not at all. He loves you. He loves you through what he's taking you through. He loves you and will bring you safe through it somehow. And why is it significant that these are desolations? What does that tell us about the future? Well, it tells us that the symbol of this little horn that came from the foreheads of the leopard that we saw last week, or the eleventh horn that came from the unspeakable beast of iron that we have reason to believe is Rome, both of those were a part of a pattern of someone who will occasionally arise in human history against God's people. How do we know it's a pattern? We know it because it came true in 160 BC under Antiochus IV, who was this little horn of the Greeks a desolator, but he wasn't the final one because Titus in AD 70, the 11th horn of the unspeakable beast of Rome, was also a desolator, and the promise is that others will come. A final desolator will come one day, and the church should not be surprised. The important thing is to know that Christ has conquered and that Christ is coming again. So some of this, as we make our way through it, is clear and some is not. The anointed prince of verse 25 is Jesus. It is he, verse 24, who will bring in everlasting righteousness. But some of it is a little less than clear, and I don't want you to be worried about the number of theories there are as to what all of this means. With these 70 years of years, this timeline of history, it does depend where you start counting, and when this is where the debate comes in. Some have suggested persuasively that the 70 years began with the return of Israel to its homeland in 1947, which 70 years from now would make the end of the world, what, 2017. In closing... Let me, with apologies to Winston Churchill, close with this reflection on the things we're sure about. Of the cross of Jesus, the one point of history we are absolutely sure about, we can say this. It is not the beginning, 
It is not even the end of the beginning, but it is without a doubt the beginning of the end. Let's pray. Lord, we are frail. We are as dust, and we thank you that you know that, that the Bible tells us that you know that, that we are faint-hearted, that we so often run at the first sign of trouble, that we fear for the future, or at other times we're too smug and self-content when things are going well. Lord, preserve us. Lord, change us. Lord, keep our eyes focused on Jesus Christ. In your name we ask this. Amen.